Since Todd Bolsinger was going to be here later, I, I wanted to talk about experiencing God in church um, and, and wanted to carry on that theme of what it means to be a church. And then last week, I, am, I introduced this idea of metaphor. And so I decided today to talk about metaphors for the church and uh, how does the Bible talk about what it means to be a church and what can we learn from that. Now, probably each of these metaphors could have been their own sermon, but I decided just to keep them all together uh, so they could sort of sort of mishmash and and uh, and compare with each other, which meant I was going to talk about a lot of different things. So I decided this week to give you some notes. So in your in your bulletin is uh, or or, uh, should have gotten when you came in uh, a fill in the blank notes. There won't be a test later, but I would encourage you to uh, to play along and fill in the blank. Actually, when my dad used to do this when I was a kid, I would try to guess what the points were. Does anybody else do that? You can try to guess what they are. Um, but but uh, anyway, uh, I just, there's a lot, I'm going to cover a lot of little different things, and I wanted you to be able to have them follow along and be able to potentially look them up later. So hence, hence why we have the handout. Now, first, a little, little recap. Last week, I talked about metaphor and how metaphor is fundamental to our thinking. That you and I use metaphors all the time, and that a lot of times we don't even think about them. And the big one I, I described last week was what? Does anybody remember? Anybody remember time? We almost exclusively talk about time as if it's money. You spend time, you waste time, you're on borrowed time, you lose time. Uh, we, we have daylight savings time, we save time, right? Like we almost exclusively talk about time as if it's money. That's a fundamental metaphor that none of us ever talked about, but we all use. Let me give you another one, another metaphor example. Argument is war. Argument is war. Anytime people talk about argument, they tend to talk about it as if it is war. Have you ever attacked someone's def- position, defended a position? You ever gotten defensive with somebody? Okay, you have your strategies, your argument lands, your points are on Target, you drop a bomb of knowledge into a discussion. What are you aiming at? You demolish your person's, the other person's argument or you shoot their argument down. Think about how often you talk about arguments as if they are war. Now, what's the problem with that metaphor? War escalates, right? Anytime you have a war, it typically gets worse and worse and worse. And there are casualties of war. Now, a lot of times, when, once you get into a war, that's kind of hard to back off. You sort of have to win at some point, right? And so, like, if you think about argument as war in your marriage, okay, this can be problematic, right? Okay, or if you think about Congress, and they're arguing over something, it becomes a war where both sides have to win. They have to attack each other, right? Suddenly, we're not talking about the argument anymore. We're talking about the war, See, what, see how the metaphor can change how you are acting. Metaphor is not neutral. When you argue with your parents, when you argue with your kids, when you argue with somebody else, it always, if it's war, then it escalates. And what the Bible is trying to do is the Bible is trying to say, okay, you have all these ways of thinking about the world, but the Bible is trying to get you to get on its metaphors, trying to get you to think about how the, it through the Bible's stories. So I, I will say... These are the inspired metaphors of God. If we think this is God's word, this is inspired by God, then the metaphors that are in there are inspired by God. Okay, I think those are, and here's how else we might say it. These are, we always say, 
This is the word of God for the people of God. I might say these are the metaphors of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I believe if you change your metaphor, you change your life. Change your metaphor, you change your life. You change how you think about something. Sometimes it really does change how you relate to that thing. So what are your metaphors? How do you think about the church? What is the metaphor? What's your paradigm fundamentally for what you think about what we're doing right now? Okay, what is a church? Okay, for a lot of people, it's like entertainment. And I know that because then after church, somebody will say, that was a good one, Jordan. As if the last one wasn't, right? <laughs> or people will say, like, I really like that sermon. Yeah, if you actually listen to it, you probably wouldn't like it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's calling you to a whole bunch of stuff. Like, we can t- think of the entertainment, education. For a lot of us, church is a social club. For a lot of us, it's a nonprofit business. It's just a, a business, an entity. There used to be a time where pastors had studies. And then eventually the church took on a lot of business models. Then what did pastors have? Offices. Pastors' studies became pastors' offices. And pastors went from being the people, the pastor, to being like CEOs of these little companies. Well, is the church a business? Yes and no. I mean, but, but however you think about the church changes how you relate to it and how you act in it. So, so let's think through some of the metaphors and the way we think about church. Let's start with the word church. The word church in Greek is ekklesia. Ekklesia. And it's a Greek word meaning called out or assembled. Called out or assembled. So so the idea was, in the the Roman world, what they would do is, when when, when something would happen in the Roman world and they needed to announce it to people, they would call a gathering. An ekklesia. And people would run out and down the streets, ekklesia, ekklesia, calling everybody to a town hall meeting where the Romans would announce whatever they were going to announce. A lot of times Romans were like, good news, we just won more territory. We just won another war. But sometimes it was, hey, everybody, we're going to be taxing you a little more this next year. Sometimes it was, hey, we're going to war and we need 10% of the men of this area to uh, go to war. Sometimes it was drafting for war. That's the word ecclesia. So when the church used the word ecclesia for church, They're implying something, that the church is assembled, it's gathered, it's called out, and the church has a purpose. Church has a purpose. And and Ecclesia is never uh, just for the heck of it, right? We don't just like call Ecclesia to enjoy each other's company. Okay, when you you call, when the Romans would call an Ecclesia, it was a gathering for a purpose. Our purpose is to hear God's message and to fulfill his purposes. We are called out by God. That's why we gather. And that's, by the way, why you can't really be a Christian at home without the other people. Because by its very definition, what it means to be a Christian and be it is to be a church is to be with each other. Now, let's look at a few metaphors. Metaphor number one, the bride. The bride. Ephesians 5 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she may be holy and without blemish. So here's here's this beautiful image. That the church is the bride of Christ. It's the bride and he... 
he, and actually Paul is here not talking about this. He's actually talking about marriage, but he's using the church to say, hey, just like God loved the church and Jesus gave himself up for the church, that's what husbands should do for wives. Okay, we should love and self-sacrifice. This beautiful image of how much God loves his church. Christ loves the church. He loves the church. He gave himself up. He died for the church. He made the church. He set us apart. This was actually a really important realization to me. I've told you guys some of my story that I grew up as a pastor's kid, some very difficult churches. And when I got older, I did not like church. Okay, I didn't want to have anything to do with church. Because all these other people seem to have great experiences with church. Mine were not so great. But then I started to fall really in love with Jesus. And the problem was, Jesus loves the church. Okay? So if Jesus loves the church, how can I say I love Jesus, but I don't actually love his church? You ever had a friend where you don't like their spouse? Okay? Does that ever happen to you? Like, I like him and his wife. I don't know about her. Okay? How's that friendship go? Does not go very well. Okay? Hard to like someone, but not like their spouse. Hard to like someone, not like their husband. You don't hang out with them as much. You don't understand them as much because their spouse is a big part of who they are. And I started to realize, actually, if Jesus loves the church that much, I should love the church too. And a lot of stuff I didn't like about the church, I decided I, I want to actually help build churches that don't look like that, but look like something I can love and be a part of. So I decided to love the church, though I hope I never have to die for it. But anyway... The church, therefore, to build the metaphor, needs to be faithful. The church, therefore, needs to be faithful. One of the metaphors you find in the Bible again and again for Israel and for us in the New Testament is that we're not always faithful. We're not always the real faithful bride. It's very easy for the church to cheat on God with all kinds of other things, like ourselves, like business models. The bride of Christ has to be faithful. We have to work for his mission. And then third, there's going to be a wedding banquet someday. This is so huge in the Bible. Jesus talks about it. The book of Revelation talks about it. But there's actually going to someday be a big wedding banquet where the church and Jesus are together, where there's nothing holding them back. And we're waiting for that day. Actually, this table is an appetizer of that banquet. So that image is so important. Biblical metaphor number two is the temple. The temple. Okay, what agreement, 2 Corinthians, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them, walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. What was special about the temple? I mean, this, this for Jesus or Paul, huge, it loomed hugely because they went to the temple. What was special about it? Well, the Spirit of God dwells in the temple. The Spirit dwells there. It's where the... T- it's where the temple, the temple is where the Spirit of God actually dwells. Where worship is central. The temple is where you went if you wanted to be with God and understand God. The Bible pushes this even further in 1 Peter. I gave you the verse there. By talking about us as the priesthood of believers. So there's this amazing two steps that happen in the New Testament. One is the temple goes from being a place to we are the temple. The temple is us because the Spirit is within us. And then, go a step further, instead of there needing to be a priest between you and God, you get to go to God. Nothing in between. 
The specialness isn't the priest and it isn't the place. It's the people. It's an interesting idea, though, isn't it? Don't we struggle with this a little bit? For years, we said, oh, the church isn't the building, it's the people. But actually, we sort of felt like it was the people, or it was the building, right? We sort of treated it like the building is pretty holy. Um, we used to even have a phrase, we, a little poem we taught our kids. Anybody remember this? Yeah. Here is the church, here is the steeple. Open the door, see all the people. Close the door, hear them pray. Open the door, and they all go away. But even that poem says, this is the church, and this is the steeple, and open the door and see the people. You understand what that means? The building is the church. The people are in it. But that's, even that poem said, there's a new poem. Have I, I, some of this I've shared with you. Okay, This is the church. This is the steeple. Open the door. Where are the people? <laughs> Down the street, in the bar. Open the door, there they are. Like that. <laughs> We said for a long time the church was the people, it's not the building. And then COVID happened, and we couldn't be in the building anymore, and that statement was really questioned all of a sudden, right? What does it mean to be a church when we can't use our building? And we've all had to sort of wrestle with, and it's been interesting because on the one hand, we, we dealt with the fact that, okay, yes, we are a church, and the building is not the church, it's just something that's part of the church. At the same time, not having the building for a little while, was anybody sense like getting back into it? It was like, oh, but actually there is something significant to the building. Like there's not, it's not insignificant, the space. The space is help, it helps in worship. And I wonder if this is going to be a huge question for the church over the next 20 to 30 years, is sort of wrestling with people and building. And what are churches doing they can't afford their building? And what do churches do when they have nice buildings but no people? Okay, how are we going to navigate that huge question for the church of tomorrow? So the temple. Let me give you another metaphor. And this is one of my favorites. It's one of the most important. The church is the body. The church is the body. For by grace, by the grace given to me, I say everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. But to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith God has assigned. For as one body we have many members, and the members do not have the same function. So the many, we are the body of Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. A prophecy in proportion to our faith. In service, in our serving. The one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. See, this is a great image, the body, the body. Your body has, the body has many parts, right? Do you know that? The body has many, many parts, and the parts have different functions. And it's important that they all function. Let me ask you a question. You ever had one part of your body stop working? Okay, how'd that go? Right. The whole body like shuts down. A couple weeks ago, this was I was running and I hurt my big toe. Man, was that miserable for a couple of days. This is a big toe. Like I've got I've got a bunch of other toes. What is the big deal? But the one one part of the body, even the small part of the body shuts down and doesn't do what it's supposed to. The whole rest of the body has to adjust to that. See, you all have gifts, you all have abilities, you all are a part of the body. And here's two problems I see in church. One is people don't use their gifts. 
Okay, so there's a lot of people that come to church and they're elbows, but they're not actually functioning in the church. They just come and they leave and they don't ever offer their gifts to the rest of the body. So then what happens? A whole bunch of people over-function in the church, okay? And they're elbows, but they're trying to stay in everybody else's body parts, okay? So here's what's got to happen. What's got to happen is you've got to play your part. You've got to play your part in this body. And you've got to also say no when it's not your part in the body. Like if you're an elbow, stay out of an armpit. That's not your job. Your gifts are over here, okay? Use your gifts where you're called, Okay, this is, this is the challenge in the church. We've, we've got to all play our part. Now, maybe your part isn't in this building. Let me just say that. Okay, we've talked about people using their gifts in the church, and what we meant was greeting and ushering. Okay, or sitting on a committee. And sure, you may need to do that, but your gifts may also be really far out there. And great, that's what you're supposed to do. That's what you're supposed to do. But what are your gifts? You can't just sit in church passively. It doesn't work. You've got to be a part of the body somewhere. Diversity is good. What a lot of churches end up doing is they just make themselves a church of elbows. We just all bring the same kind of people with the same kind of thinking. And then we got nothing but elbows. And we can't really do much because we don't have an exchange of ideas and gifts. Okay, bodies have a head. Paul makes this emphasis over and over again that Jesus is the head of the church. Okay, means we don't fight over who's the head. We know who's the head. It's Jesus. It's not me, it's not anybody else, but Jesus. And our job then is to be a body that follows our head. Okay, you don't want to be a body that doesn't do what the head tells you to. You want to follow the head. Now, we could have used, I could have used another of a number of other metaphors. Um, just to say bodies should work together, they should grow, they should develop, they should move. But, but some of those same kind of things, we could have talked about a vine. John 15, like the church is a vine. A flock. Hebrews and Ephesians talk about the church as if it's a household or a family. It could be a field that God planted. Maybe it's a. I also think that we can use modern metaphors as long as they're in line with Scripture. So here's one for church I did, I did not think worked. When I was working at a Methodist church up in Erie, uh, there was a church that was having like a big 150 year anniversary. And they had this banner and this slogan for the 150th anniversary. It said, the anchor holds. Which, which at first I read that. And I was like, yeah, that's good. You know, the, and my anchor holds within the veil. We're still here. We're still going. Until a friend of mine says, you know, if their anchor holds, it means they're not going anywhere. <laughs> I thought, well, maybe your anchor holds is not quite the metaphor we wanted. Right? Maybe, maybe our sails are full would be better. But uh, anchor holds and... And uh, it was maybe a little more fitting metaphor than they re- realized. Okay, but, but so, so I think we can have even modern metaphors as long as they're rooted and agree with the biblical metaphor. So here's one I like to use, God for my teacher, Len Sweet, but is the idea of terroir. Terroir. Have you heard this word before? Terroir is, is this word in uh, agriculture that means uh, that the place where something is grown should give its characteristics to whatever the thing is. Okay, you hear it a lot in cheeses and in wines, but it's true of all kinds of things. Terroir is sometimes called specificity of place. I love that phrase. Specificity of place. Which means if I eat cheese that came from cows in this area, I should be able to know that when I smell it, when I taste it. 
It's very big in wine. I don't, we, we have people here that drink wine, but I don't know too many like wine snobs. How many of you know like a wine snob? And they get the wine, you have to like hold it a certain way. And have to sh- so when I was out in Seattle a couple, couple months ago now, uh, a guy out there took me and a friend to a wine tasting. Okay, and it was, uh, he, he said, I want to take you to this winery because they grow grapes in this one valley, and I love the wine that comes from that valley better than the other ones. I was like, okay, <laughs> you know what I mean? So we tried all these wines, and I, he was playing, paying, praise God. And, uh, and so he, we were doing all this wine tasting, and I'm just like, they keep giving me wine, and I'll swirl it like they are. I'm just like copying it, smelling it, taste it. I'll be like, tastes red. Yeah, tastes red. You know what I mean? Tastes fruity. But, but my, my friend that was out there could, could, could drink a wine and could honestly tell you where the vine was. That's how specific people can get on this terroir. Okay, that you can actually taste that between soil and uh, um, water, between how the grape is, is uh, taken care of. You can actually taste some of those differences. And uh, I love that metaphor. Because that's what church needs to be. Church needs to have terroir. It needs to be local. Here's a couple ways I might say it. Churches should fit their context in themselves. They need to be authentic. Our church should look like it should look. And if you took our church and moved it to Pittsburgh, it shouldn't work there. Okay, Our church shouldn't work in Youngstown. It shouldn't work in Butler. Our church should be so us. That it doesn't make sense other places. That's how authentic. The, the church of the future will be radically local. I'm telling you that right now. Radically in its place. And uh, I don't mean that it's a neighborhood church. I think that's shifting. <clears throat> like most of the people in this room don't live right here next to the church. A couple people do. Most people live all kinds of places. We're actually like a regional church. We're not actually like a neighborhood church. But... We should look incredibly local. We need terroir. We need to make decisions about a lot of things in this church that are authentically us. The word I use all the time is fit. Fit. What fits us? What fits us? That's the decision making we have to make. So I love this image of terroir. Whatever your metaphors are for church, try to think about them. Try to think about how you experience church. I believe that church is one of the consistent ways we should experience God. God made this place. God leads this place. God calls us to this place. This is the one place. I don't know if God will be in the grocery, if I'll be able to sense God in the grocery store or not. I don't know how it works for me to go this week. But I do know here I should be able to meet God. And unfortunately, there are a lot of people that have not experienced God in church. There are a lot of people who have have experienced anti-God, anti-Christ in church. Have had really terrible experiences church and I feel terrible about that we want to build a place where people come and experience God here <clears throat> in ecclesia not perfect but doing everything we can to be a body to be the bride to be the temple to have terroir and feel local it is both an honor and a challenge to be a church today may we rise to it and may people experience God here In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.